Welcome to the audio edition of the Bylines Network. In here, you'll find four articles from different publications in the network, read by our team of readers. Thank you to our writers for writing them and to our readers for recording them. We hope you enjoy. COP26. What will climate change look like in East Anglia by 2050? By James Graham. Read by Stephen Tomlin. The answer is a function of two things. Really quite predictable atmospheric physics and strangely unpredictable human activity. Barring perhaps an asteroid strike or a Yellowstone eruption, the climate will be dictated by what we do as a species before 2025. What happens if the government actually does what it says it will? Government has committed to net zero by 2050. Its enthusiasm seems limited in terms of concrete actions and it has left a great many loopholes by failing to factor in things like shipping and aviation. It's been told by the experts in the Climate Change Committee to expect a world four degrees warmer. Crucially, that's what the military is currently gearing up for. So, it would not be fair to say that the four degrees centigrade scenario would be the result of doing nothing. However, the effect is similar. After that point, there may be no one around to keep records. The climate doesn't remain stable, since numerous tipping points will already have been triggered. More tipping points would follow, and there's a great deal of uncertainty about how they would interact with each other. We risk losing any chance of even predicting what happens into the future, with warming happening possibly faster than it's ever happened before. How about East Anglia? Well, it's not the vision of apocalypse you might be imagining. According to the best predictions we have, the UK is quite well insulated from the big dramatic effects of climate. It will be warmer during both winter and summer months, drier in the summer than it is already, and wetter in winter. And we're already starting to see heavier precipitation events will tend to come less predictably, meaning more flooding with less warning. It will be harder to capture water. It will also mean bigger and more energetic storms, which will cause more coastal erosion, along with progressively high storm surges and inland inundation. These might not sound like huge problems. They certainly lack the drama of towering forest fires, and individually they wouldn't be. Our globalised industrial system, for all its wonders, is very vulnerable to shocks. Complex systems are prone to cascading collapses. One component fails and stresses the components around it, and some of those then fail, adding to the pressure and spreading the stress effects outwards into the system. It doesn't always require an actual failure that anyone would notice. Small failures can lead cumulatively to systemic collapses. What will present a real threat to East Anglia isn't the weather, but global reactions to it. Our systems of food distribution and resource management are, by design, balanced on a knife edge of efficiency, so there's no room for shocks. What happens if that shock is more serious than just a bit too much water for a season? A few bad growing seasons can cause wars. People are displaced. Many are already migrating because their ancestral land is barren, and these people find themselves in hostile territory because there's already stress on the food system there. Believe it or not, this opens an opportunity for hope. Much of the way we live and plan assumes that we are outside of natural systems, 
but we are and always have been part of a system regulated by physics and biology. Where we're going wrong is that we create linear systems in a world of cycles that poison the planet that's our home with waste streams it isn't adapted to deal with. Nature operates in cycles, not linear systems. Even dung becomes food or soil or something. Nothing is waste. We need to learn to work with the planet, not without it. So I'm excited, for example, about renewable energy. But not because it's cool, innovative technology. It's because to have a human world run like that requires us to be more in tune with how the world actually works. If there is to be a long run, we have to stop pretending we're in charge. We never really were. And we're in the process, right now, of learning that lesson. One way or the other. One in six work from home due to petrol shortages, says new research. Written by Chloe Davies and read by Yvonne Vanke. Long lines of worried car drivers have caused disturbances in many petrol stations across the country, with some of them fighting over the last available litres of petrol. The government has even called on the UK Army to deliver fuel in order to fix the fuel supply issues and ease the situation at petrol stations. New research performed by the human resources firm Randstad found that one in six Brits are working from home because they are unable to access fuel for their daily commute. Almost 450 adults participated in the survey, of which 17% reported that the only way for them to go to their office is by public transport, cycling or walking. At the same time, 5% of the participants have decided to return to the office to avoid expensive energy bills that have increased due to the energy market crisis. Graham Trevor, Group HR Director at Randstad UK said, while we have worked hard to ensure our employees are given enough freedom to flex their working schedule between office and home settings, there will always be uncontrollable factors such as severe weather conditions, or in this case, an unforeseen fuel shortage, which could prevent them from getting to the office. We need to ensure that as employers, we are promoting and encouraging a flexible working environment where suitable, and employees have the comfort in knowing that they have the freedom and the right tools to work from home effectively, should they need to. Is there a limit on how much petrol you can buy? Although the government has the power to put a limit on how much petrol drivers can buy and the time frame during which they can buy it, it has not imposed this measure yet. Some petrol stations have introduced a £30 cap on the amount of petrol people can buy. The doctor's body, the BMA, the teachers' union, NAS, UWT, and politicians have put pressure on the government to let key workers have priority access to petrol stations to avoid disruption to essential services. However, the government hasn't announced plans to prioritise key workers, as it did with nurseries and schools during the pandemic. Oil companies have reassured that there is enough fuel in stock. The biggest reason for the shortage is the lack of HGV drivers to deliver the petrol to forecourts. The coronavirus pandemic has caused a global shortage of lorry drivers, although there have been long-term labour issues due to the ageing workforce, low wages, poor work conditions and new employment rules after Brexit. In the UK, there has been a shortage of around 
100,000 drivers. This has resulted in further delays of fuel deliveries for petrol stations and supply chain issues in supermarkets. Brexit has caused even more disturbance as new regulations and rules have been put in place for foreign workers. Many of the drivers that used to work in England and have left the country before Brexit are unable to return. Before, they were able to easily work in the UK and move around the Union. Furthermore, the decline of the pound against the euro has made the UK a less attractive market for EU workers. Drivers have been paid based on kilometres driven rather than on an hourly basis, meaning that any delay would cost them money. This combined with the tax changes makes it very financially unattractive for EU drivers to work in England. Recently, the government announced a temporary visa scheme to allow more than 10,000 foreign workers to work temporarily in the UK for three months until Christmas. This could create work opportunities for 5,000 HGV drivers and 5,500 poultry workers. How Sussex can rediscover its wild side. Written by Ross McNally, read by Nicola Tipton. I trudge along the narrow footpath, flanked on either side by barbed wire fences, stretching ahead in parallel towards the horizon. To my left are the fields of a riding stable. To my right, a field of bulls and rams. Directly ahead, straddling the footpath, is field upon field of cows and sheep. There are few trees, except for the occasional windswept hawthorns marking fence lines. Welcome to the South Downs National Park. Like all British national parks, the South Downs is failing. National parks must all do far more to meet their duties to promote wildlife. I wish to suggest a particular enthralling idea for the Downs, bison. The European bison is the largest terrestrial herbivore species remaining in Europe. They are heavy hitters on their habitat, mainly by means of grazing and browsing, but also by scratching themselves on trees, trampling vegetation, dust bathing and wallowing. They can thus maintain open areas of habitat, including bare soil, low sward and ephemeral pools of standing water, important micro habitats for a range of creatures. Their role in nutrient cycling through urination and defecation can alter the distribution of soil fertility, forming distinct plant communities, as can their carcass decomposition. All well and good as a habitat, but the only reason it is so common is because of centuries of deforestation, followed by centuries of overgrazing and soil depletion. Rewilding is a relatively new but rapidly spreading idea. It can describe a broad array of ecosystem management and conservation actions. It can be passive, such as the Sussex Kelp Restoration Project, to recover coastal kelp forests by protecting almost 200 square kilometres of coastline from nearshore trawling. Or it can be more active, involving reintroducing missing species that would have been important components of their ecosystem. Rewilding restores ecosystems to a point where, as far as possible, they can regulate themselves. Bison would enable the best of both worlds, maintaining open grassland over areas of the downs, whilst also allowing space for scrub and developing woodland, which in turn would be used for shelter and food by the bison. They would expose bare soil, 
ideal for colonisation by low-growing perennial plants, such as the horseshoe vetch, a major obstacle might be the question of space. How could we reintroduce bison in crowded, domesticated southern England? The South Downs National Park covers an area of 1,625 square kilometres. Bieloiza National Park on the Polish-Belarusian border became the first place to reintroduce bison from captivity. And there, the core area occupied by bison is around 100 square kilometres. The Lua Wildlife Conservancy in Kenya hosts both black and white rhinoceroses, elephants, hippopotamuses and lions in an area of around 250 square kilometres. Hopefully the point is clear. The question is not whether we have space, but how we use it. It's recommended that a population of bison should be reintroduced into a habitat with a minimum size of 100 square kilometres, which should theoretically be easy to find. And in Kent, the Wilder Bleen project run by Kent Wildlife Trust and the Wildwood Trust will introduce the first free roaming bison to Britain in 2022. This project will initially release one male and three females into a fenced area of West Bleen Woods in order to help restore natural management of the woodland and boost biodiversity. Ambitious rewilding efforts by helping to restore and rebalance ecosystems could help to provide natural climate solutions as the Sussex Kelp Restoration Project intends. The failure of the SDNPA to see the value of this should not, however, be an excuse for despondency, but rather should catalyse a more resolute effort from activists and the public to demand that our national parks step up to the forefront of rewilding. 